surprise you too much. A favorite proverb. Isn't it the favorite proverb? What's a favorite proverb? Yeah, Patty. Okay, there you go. Okay. You can quote it, yeah. That's a classic. Three, five, and six, yeah. That's a good one, yeah. Yeah, Paul. Yeah, what's that one? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We're going to talk about that. Yeah, knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. We're going to talk about that's a very important kind of cornerstone piece. Those are both excellent passages to memorize and to know. Yeah, Didi. Yeah, so some child training wisdom for sure there in the Proverbs. There are several others of that of that nature. That's a really helpful and good one. Any others? We're getting a flavor for what Proverbs says. We've probably all I would guess probably all of us have heard Proverbs before. Some of them some of some of us have read through it many times. Others of us maybe have just heard some Proverbs trickling through here and there, maybe on the lips of others. Um but moving into this lesson, we're going to cover Proverbs. Here's how it's going to look. Uh, we're going to, uh, the first thing we're going to do is in getting into Proverbs, we're kind of addressing a new section of the Old Testament, which is called the wisdom literature. Now we did last series, we covered Job, which is one of the wisdom books. But we're going to sort of first give a little bit of an overview of the wisdom literature, the, the block of books that Proverbs is kind of the heart of. But they're, they're all sort of doing something unique in in the biblical canon we'll look at the wisdom literature then we'll kind of zoom into the book of proverbs itself give an overview about its writing and its structure then we'll look at the theology of proverbs and then some of the life areas the areas of life application that it touches on so that's how this will proceed we're going to start by talking about the wisdom literature is that clear any any questions or thoughts before we get going okay Wisdom and the wisdom literature. What is wisdom? Um, it's a kind of practical knowledge regarding how the world works, uh, what is a good life, and how one might live it. So it's practical knowledge. What's the world really like? What's a good life? How do you live a good life? Uh, biblical wisdom is a coherent whole. It covers all of reality. It's not just a group of fragments of, of facts or fragments of techniques about, here, just do this. Uh, you know, some advice that's sort of isolated. It's this coherent whole vision of the world, and its foundation is the fear of the Lord. We get that right out of the, the verse, Proverbs 9, 10, that Paul uh, cited for us and read for us. The foundation is the fear of the Lord. It's only in light of viewing God and a big view of how great God is, a, a view of the world that's, Dominated, So you say the whole world is kind of in the shadow of our understanding of how big God is. Only in that view do we see everything else rightly. You have Psalm 36, 9 saying, in your light, speaking to God, in your light do we see light. Everything starts to become clear. And the, knowledge, the, the second half of that verse, Proverbs 9, 10, the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. It's only in view of everything in relation to God that we can begin to really understand anything. So, how does biblical wisdom fit into the rest of what the Bible's doing? How does it fit with other genres of revelation? And in the Old Testament, these are law and prophecy. It's kind of the three major sections of the, of the Old Testament. The law, would, it would be the writings, which is mainly wisdom literature, and it would be um, 
prophecy. Well, what does law do? Law is instruction. Law is God telling us true doctrine and commands about what to do. And then prophecy is divine declaration. If you read the prophets, what are the prophets usually doing? They're doing things like they're interpreting present events. They're giving God's perspective on what's happening right now. Um, They're calling people to account for violations of God's law. So they're kind of the lawyers, the prosecuting attorneys, calling Israel to account for how they've broken God's law. And they're giving uh, uh, future predictions from God about what is going to happen whether it's judgment or, or salvation. So these divine declarations. Well, what then is wisdom? Wisdom uh, complements commands. Think of the mode that the law is in is usually a commanding mode. Wisdom complements that by giving us a, a kind of broader, more comprehensive view of the world under God. Again, this is the idea of fear of the Lord as a foundation. The whole world under God and how to live in it in a way that's consistent with the grain of reality as God has made it. So wisdom doesn't just tell us what to do like law does. It's a little broader. It it kind of tells us how to live well in the world toward the good ends that God has designed us for as creatures in his image. It doesn't contradict his law. As we'll see as we get into it, it kind of assumes his law. It's sort of built upon the, the foundation of God's moral law, but it does a little bit more in terms of How do we view the world? How do we understand how the world works under God? Um, Any any questions about that so far? What is wisdom? What is biblical wisdom? How does it fit with the other parts of the Bible? Okay. So the next question to ask is where are we in the Bible storyline? Where does the wisdom literature fit in the flow of the the progress of redemption. Now, if you're familiar with reading these books, especially yeah, all of them, really, Job, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs, if you're familiar with these books, from the inside, it feels kind of timeless. It, it feels like we're in this kind of detour from Israel's story into this kind of timeless realm of truth. And there is a sense in which that's true, that, that we're dealing with kind of permanent realities about the way the world is. It's not as much, an, it's not a narrative. It doesn't work that way. But we do need to consider the, the narrative context in which the wisdom literature comes to us. And we're going to see in a moment that, that most of the wisdom literature is attributed to Solomon, King Solomon. Uh, he's the writer of most of Proverbs. And we, we need to consider his place in the story and the Davidic covenant uh, and the role of wisdom in that. So we won't read, read there. Uh, there's a couple chapters, 1 Kings 3 and 4, that I just want to cite and, and allude to, to really, it really gives us a framework for what's going on in the wisdom literature. So the narrative there gives us a little foretaste. What we have is, you may recall, we've talked about this before, that in, in David's reign in 2 Samuel 7, God promises David, uh, his seed, his son, will have an eternal reign. Um, and what kind of Solomon, who's the son of David, who's the next king, functions as sort of an arrow pointing forward to what that ultimately is going to be, and there's many aspects of Solomon's reign that anticipate that fulfillment without exactly being that fulfillment. What happens is Solomon looks really promising and in a few key directions looks like the one to come, but then he, he fades and he fails. And we start to see, oh, we, we're still waiting yet another greater Solomon, essentially. Greater fulfillment of the Davidic hope. Um, but what do you see about Solomon in 1 Kings 3 and 4? You see God's king reigning from God's city 
And you see this explosion from him of God's wisdom. That's a big thing. Remember, God asked Solomon, what do you want? You can have anything. And he says, I want wisdom to rule your people with justice. And God abundantly grants that. And there's all this, everything's going great in 1 Kings 3 and 4, right? And all this money comes in and all these people from other nations come to hear Solomon's wisdom. And then we have from chapters 5 to 8 of 1 Kings, a shift into the temple. You have the whole narrative of building the temple, gathering materials, building and then dedicating the temple. So you have this, this picture coming together of God's king and God's city um, um, bursting forth with God's wisdom that wows the nations. And then this establishment of God's house, God's place of worship. So we're having this, all these, again, these are all future pointing forward to a greater fulfillment in Christ. Um, Especially, I will point you to 1 Kings 4, verses 29 to 34. There's really this almost, I, I think it's an intentionally kind of evocative of, of Eden. Some of the ways that King Solomon's reigns is described. So would someone read 1 Kings 4, verses 29 to 34? Thank you. So there's a lot going on here, but just to point out a few. One is we have Solomon, who's wiser than everyone else. He, he, he speaks 3,000 Proverbs. That means the book of Proverbs is really like the greatest hits collection. There's a lot more that never gets uh, written in, in, in the canon of Scripture. Um, we have this very, very kind of creational, Edenic kind of language that evokes the creation account. You hear about trees and plants and... Uh, the beasts, the birds, the reptiles, the fish, different realms of, of life in the created world. Um, and, and then in verse 34, that all the nations kind of gathering to Solomon to hear his wisdom, to hear his God-given wisdom. And you think of it, it's almost like this reversal of Babel, right, where everyone's scattered away from God, ultimately the extension of being scattered away from God's garden. And so there's these little hints of like, wow, this is almost like, a, almost like hints of Eden again in the reign of Solomon. Um, extending God's wisdom to God's people. So that's, the, that's where this, in the storyline the wisdom literature comes to us. And so what we're getting is a glimpse of what it, mean for God, what it means for God to reign among his people. And it means a kind of a new creation that's full of God's wisdom, um, which is the fear of the Lord, uh, which is lives lived in joy and peace and righteousness under God. Uh, now, of course, I said in, in the event... In Solomon's case, it was only a foreshadowing because in Solomon's case, what happens is that he, he falls. He falls into idolatry and compromise. And from then on, the Davidic line is, is plagued by unfaithfulness and decline. 
But the storyline, therefore, is pointing us to, oh, we need a greater David, a greater Solomon, who will fulfill these hopes in the same direction, um, which points us to Christ, who the prophets frame often as a wisdom, like Isaiah 11 frames Christ as a, a one who would be filled with the spirit of wisdom uh, to fulfill these, these expectations, one from the line of, of Jesse. So we're going to talk a little bit more about Christ in a moment, but that's where we are in the story, when, when we, we have all this, again, kind of timeless wisdom, but it's... It's coming in this, in this narrative frame of beginning to see and beginning to taste God's reign among his people. So, any, uh, any questions or thoughts further about that, where we are in the biblical storyline? Well, um, let's talk about the different wisdom books. Uh, I said before, it's Job, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs. There's a fair amount of wisdom in the Psalms. I didn't get to t- teach on this last week, but... There's some of the psalms that are kind of a wisdom format. Psalm 1 that we looked at is, Psalm 37 is another one. But mainly these, these four books are the wisdom literature. And uh, what, I, what I think we could say is that Proverbs is kind of like the home base of biblical wisdom. It's the hub of the wheel. And it's, it gives kind of the general patterns of wisdom, helping us understand our world and navigate a good life in the fear of the Lord. And Proverbs is really focuses on cause and effect. Like there, and we'll talk about this in a moment, but it's very much, if, if, if you do this, this will happen. This is sort of, again, baked into the grain of God's world. Do this and this will happen. Um, there are consequences to actions, both good and bad. Um, and fear of the Lord learns and discerns how to navigate that. But then other books of wisdom come in and kind of add complexity to that basic picture. So in very, very broad strokes, we could almost say, like, we could say, Proverbs' basic message is live in the fear of the Lord and you'll have a good life. Things will go well with you. There's this cause and effect. Do this and you'll get this outcome. Then Job comes and says, ah, yes, but Proverbs don't run backwards. That's kind of the main point of, of, of Job is Proverbs don't run backwards, meaning bad outcomes and suffering don't necessarily mean that you don't fear the Lord. Because there's, there's other factors going on. God's mysterious purposes and his sovereign will is beyond our imagination and our understanding. So you can't just uh, take those cause and effects of Proverbs and say that's all that's going on. You can run it forward and backward. Ecclesiastes also comes along and says, yes, Proverbs does lead you to a good life under the sun. But even that alone, a good life under the sun in this world is too transitory, too small to bear the weight of our meaning and hope. So if all you have is how to live a good life, and that's kind of all that matters to you, it's going to lead to uh, burnout and nihilism. It's not a, a big enough perspective. Song of Songs also comes along and says, yes, fear of the Lord, do the, do the good things, and you'll get good outcomes. But this rational cause and effect, uh, this rational way of viewing the world, is not the whole picture. And we're called to give space for the extra rational bliss of marital love in God's good world. There is something very good and God designed about that marital love. So um, as I mentioned, uh, we covered Job last fall and and Lord willing after this week we're doing Proverbs. Next week we're going to cover Ecclesiastes and Song of Songs. So we'll get to kind of fill out this picture a little bit better. At this point, any comments on that kind of overview of the wisdom books? Any thoughts? Refinements? Questions? Yeah, Sherry. Do you mean between God and the church or man and woman? Yeah, come next week. Uh, yes. I, I think the answer is yes, yes. 
It is. It is. Definitely in the, in the context of the whole canon, it is showing us Christ in the church. But it's more immediately a, a celebration of marital love. Yeah. So it applies to real marriages uh, between men and women in the world and Christ in his church. Yeah. I just gave it away. But you still come next week. <laughs> Well, let's talk, uh, we talked last week a little bit about poetry, Hebrew poetry, when we looked at the Psalms, and the two, does anyone remember from last week, it's okay if you don't, I know a lot has happened in the last seven days, a lot has passed through your brain, but what were the two big keys to interpreting poetry in the Old Testament? Two big elements. Figurative language, very good. So imagery, figurative language, what was the other one? Cola, oh wow, yeah, parallels, right? Those are the two sections in a verse. The two uh, halves, they're called, a singular is a colon, or the two, two are called cola. Understanding how those two relate to each other and understanding how figurative language works, imagery, is a huge amount of, uh, of the pie for understanding poetry. And it's the same case. The Proverbs are poetic. So um, the parallels are very important. And in Proverbs, the real, the real feature in the parallels is called the antithetic or kind of the opposite parallel. So an example is Proverbs 10.3. The Lord does not let the righteous go hungry, but he thwarts the craving of the wicked. Do you see those two? These two ways contrasted. That is very much, not every proverb does this, but it's very characteristic of Proverbs. The two ways contrasted. The wise, the foolish, or the righteous, the wicked, etc. So there's that antithetic parallelism is, is important. And then imagery and figurative language is important. Which, again, as I said last week, they have great evocative power. They do more than just teach bullet point kind of doctrine. We could develop bullet points that communicate the truth with Proverbs, but they're doing more than that. They're evoking um, meditation from us. They're making us, and imagery does that. It makes us ponder pictures in our minds that really lets the truth seep into us in a more complete way. And they're really good for meditation, for chewing on these images and what God is is telling us through them. So an example, and you can almost just turn anywhere in Proverbs and put your finger down on a verse and you'll see some kind of image being evoked. Um, one example is Proverbs 12, 13. An evil man is ensnared by the transgression of his lips, but the righteous escapes from trouble. You could communicate the, the doctrine of that without imagery. You could say, uh, watch out, your, your sinning with your mouth will, will hurt you or it will, it will do damage. But man, isn't it vivid to see he's ensnared he's caught in a trap there's a there's a desperation there um anyway there's a lot you could just meditate on these and understand what what god is saying uh so again these proverbs biblical poetry invites meditation it invites slow careful um chewing on that lingers in our imagination so um that's it for kind of an overview of wisdom literature any other comments or Questions before we go on to Proverbs more particularly? Okay. What, let's talk about Proverbs. Overview of Proverbs. What are Proverbs? Well, a proverb is a concise and pithy statement that grants a certain perspective for understanding the world. Now, let's just add, think about it. Does anyone know of any non-biblical Proverbs? A proverb is a genre of saying that exists beyond the Bible. In fact, the Bible talks about other ancient Near Eastern people that composed Proverbs. It was a big 
uh, important activity among among people. So anyway, and we have them in our culture. So yeah, Randy, any? A fool and his money is soon parted. Yeah, yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, Didi. A bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. A bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. Yeah, yeah, Zach. Taste makes waste. Taste makes waste. Stitch in time saves nine. Yeah, uh, Garrett. Saved is a penny. Penny saved is a penny earned. Yeah. Squeaky wheel gets. Squeaky wheel gets the <laughs> Yeah. So we, I mean, that we know a lot of these, right? And and that's what they're doing. There are these little sayings that that articulates something true about the world. None of them is telling us everything true about the world. But each one is this kind of almost, almost poetic in its kind of conciseness. A lot is packed into them, and they're, they're profound in that they're, they're simple, but they really unlock a lot of understanding about reality. Um, and that's what biblical proverbs are doing too. So biblical wisdom, the way I like to describe it is each piece of biblical wisdom is a thread of truth that is explained to us what's going on in various life situations. And think of threads. Think of a, a f- the matrix of a fabric, right? You've got a piece of fabric. There's all these threads interwoven with each other, um, can, interacting together to make this whole. And that's what biblical wisdom is. There's all these different little threads that are all in relationship with each other. Each teaching of God's wisdom is true, but none is comprehensive. Every proverb and every piece of God's wisdom teaching is true, but none of them claims to be telling us the whole picture. Um, Real life is always a complex tangle of these principles at work, and sometimes they're pulling against each other in tension. That's why I I just said. Proverbs tells us this message about how the world works, and then Job comes along and doesn't contradict Proverbs, but says, yes, but, and it applies some tension. There's another angle. There's another uh, set of perspectives we need to bring into the equation. And so biblical wisdom learns how to recognize the truth of these threads and how they're interacting with each other in life situations. That's why living biblical wisdom and, and kind of mature uh, living of life under God is, is like infinitely, there's, we could always grow more, right? Because there's, we can see a situation and go, well, it's very clear what to do. You know, we think of like one Bible verse. And then you may mature a little bit and realize, yes, that's true. But there's other factors to consider. There's other biblical threads that are touching on this issue and we need to to grow and and mature and and considering all of it and and responding appropriately so some you you may hear people dealing with proverbs and i think this is true and good people will say proverbs are general principles but they're not promises that's an often you know it can be dangerous to look at proverbs and say dd raise a child up in the way he should go when he's old he'll not depart from it well be careful not to take that as a problem. If I do the right things with my kid, they'll definitely be saved and they'll definitely be righteous. And we know that that's, that's, uh, it can't be taken that way. And I wouldn't say, oh, just be careful you don't, you don't believe them too much. What I would say is that's a true thread. It's just not the whole picture. It's a true verity of how the world works, but it's not the only factor that goes into how a child will grow up and turn out. And so we can't put all of our hope on this one verse as like the, the key to explain everything. Um, we also have doctrines like indwelling sin and, you know, or like the, our sin nature, right? Uh, the original sin that we've all inherited from Adam, et cetera. So um, does that make sense? The matrix of, of truth and wisdom that you take it all together and we grow in learning to incorporate it all more kind of more coherently. Um, so it, it, when you read Proverbs, you get this dizzying array of different topics and different issues it's dealing with. Well, it's giving us this 
this kind of broad perspective of how all this fits together under God. Uh, a brief note on the outline of the book, how it's structured. Um, first, very, very beginning, there's a prologue, verses 1 through 7 of chapter 1. It's really kind of the heading over the whole book, talking about the purpose, what it is. It's the Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. And then there's sort of this long purpose statement to know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight. Like, this is what the book is for. It's to instruct you. Um, and then it ends with kind of another statement of what Paul gave us from 9.10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. This is the foundation for the whole thing is this truth. Uh, that's the prologue. Then you have in the rest of chapter 1 all the way through chapter 9, there's this extended invitation to wisdom. Um, it's it's a dialogue, or it's, it's kind of a monologue from, from a father. We'll talk about it in a moment, but it's like from a father to a young son who's launching out into the world as a young man, inviting him to a life of wisdom. And then from ch- chapter 10 through pretty much to the end, I guess you could say through 31.9, there are individual proverbs. I just said these, these short sayings, and they're not generally very organized topically. You'll just go read through it, and it's like this smorgasbord. There are little groupings of topics together sometimes. Uh, but within that, there's structure by author. So from 10.1 through 24.22, these are called the Proverbs of Solomon. And these are guided by headings in Proverbs. That's where these are coming from. Then 24.23 through 34 are called the sayings of the wise. Then from 25.1 through 29.27, it says again the Proverbs of Solomon. But these are compiled by uh, or copied by Hezekiah's men, who is a king much later. Uh, then you have chapter 30, the words of Agur. Does anyone know who Agur was? No, me neither. <laughs> no, nobody really knows who Agur was. Uh, same for King Lemuel, 31, 1 to 9. He's another king who's, he has a collection of stuff that got incorporated. Nobody really knows who he was either. And then there's the epilogue, which is the excellent wife, chapter 31, verses 10 to 31. So that's, that's the outline. We've already spoken a bit to authorship, talking about composition, how the book was written. Um, we've seen that really the, the main section, the body of Proverbs, is, is organized by authorship uh, with headings that, that tell us who the authors are. Uh, the book seems to be an anthology of collections by various, written by various authors. Again, even Solomon wrote way more Proverbs than what, what I think there's like four, four or five hundred Proverbs by Solomon in here out of the like 3,000 he wrote. So this is just a small fraction of what he wrote. Um, we don't know, again, who Agra or Lemuel were. Uh, we don't know who wrote the sayings of the wise. Um, we read in a moment ago how First Kings says he wrote all these thousands of Proverbs. Ecclesiastes 12.9 tells us that the preacher, the Ecclesiastes guy, wrote a bunch of Proverbs, who's probably he was Solomon too. So we know Solomon is a prolific writer of Proverbs. Um, 1, 1 to 7, I just referred to, says at the head of the whole book, the Proverbs of Solomon. Then at the end of this, what's hard is to know what does that apply to? What exactly is being ascribed to Solomon? Because once you get past this opening section in chapter 10, it starts with the Proverbs of Solomon. So it's like, wait, does that mean 1 through 9 was written by someone else? Uh, or is it just since it's a new section, it says that again? It's a little bit uncertain. Some interpreters infer that because of the heading at the beginning, 
and we know Solomon wrote a bunch of Proverbs, that we should just assume everything was written by Solomon unless we know otherwise. I kind of lean that way. Others say, well, chapters 1 through 9 were probably written later by somebody else and appended to the body of Solomon's Proverbs that starts in chapter 10. That's acceptable, too. There's really really no way to be dogmatic about that. But um, however you slice it, it's mostly written by Solomon. Uh, Depending on what we do with chapters 1 through 9, um, Solomon either wrote 56% of the book or 86% of the book with other much smaller contributions by other, other authors. Um, but that's, that's kind of the, the authorship situation. And we've said this before. It's totally consistent with the doctrine of inspiration, uh, that this is the word of God, to say, hey, you know, the, the original, that's uh, like Psalms. We don't know who wrote some of the Psalms, and we don't know who pulled the whole collection together into its final form, but we know that Every bit of that process is part of the, the doctrine of inspiration, that God was breathing out these words in their composition, and the Holy Spirit was overseeing the process of kind of editing together the work so that the final product is the word of God. It's the word of man and the word of potentially different people involved in the process over time, but it's still, we don't have to go, oh, we don't have to get into the history of it and go like, oh, I have to figure it out before we can know it's scripture. Well, it's clearly scripture. The New Testament treats it as the word of God and calls it the word of God. It's scripture. So we don't have to sweat about the, the historical process of how it was uh, compiled and edited to say, look, this is clearly part of the, the canon of, of the Old Testament scripture. It was accepted by Jesus and the apostles as God's word. And it is. Um, so regarding dating, I, I, you know, Solomon reigned from 970 to 930 B.C. So a lot of it was written then. Uh, we don't know who, when the parts were written that we don't know who wrote. Um, Hezekiah's men who compiled some of Solomon's material, he was, was reigning about 700 B.C., so roughly 250 years after Solomon. So we know that the final form was edited together at least that late, maybe a little bit later. We don't know. Um, it's, it's likely that since these were different sections written by different people, that some of these collections were known and circulated before there was a final form of Proverbs. So there may have been collections of Solomon's Proverbs that were, that were known among Israel before uh, this book was finished. Um, but that's kind of it for the writing of the book, kind of details of its composition. Do we have any thoughts or questions about that? All right. Oh, yeah, David. So it's all written in Hebrew, correct? Mm-hmm. So how confident are you in the English translation that we're reading? Most of us aren't Hebrew mm-hmm. experts. Occasionally you hear um, from biblical scholars and people that seem like they would be informed that there's certain verses that maybe have been translated in the King James originally mm-hmm. and popularized an understanding that isn't actually what, you know, capture the nuance of what the Hebrew is saying. For instance, the... Uh, train up a child in the way to go verse there's been some you know, writing mm-hmm. on that saying that you know there's perhaps a better translation that's more mm-hmm. <laughs> quite different than the way we yeah. understand it I've seen something on I don't, I don't know how this could possibly be true but Proverbs 31 is really more about personification of wisdom of yeah. women, rather than the standard for wives and so how do you like how do you how should we think about that and approach that when we yeah, well, those are two different issues because that Proverbs 31 argument, I don't think that's a translation argument as much as a con- contextual. It's more of like no one's disagreeing on how to translate anything. It's more of how do we interpret it in, in the context of Proverbs. 
and I'll hopefully get to that in a little bit. But um, the question of translation, yeah, I would just say in general, you're asking how do we how can we know how trustworthy our translation is? That that example you cited about training up a child in the way you should go, I haven't studied it. I have heard what you've heard that it's it's maybe the way we've it's there's an English translation tradition that has led us to read it more positively than it's supposed to be sort of like watch out if your kid goes in this bad track he'll just continue in it um i haven't studied that i've 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 heard what you've heard on that too in general though i'll just say and i've i look at the bible in hebrew and greek very often and i'll just say i am usually very impressed by the the quality of like ES and not just ESV. There's other translations that do a good job. NIV is usually very good, and ASB is usually very good. We don't study Greek and Hebrew usually to see how badly the English translators did. We do it to get a little bit more precision on the choices they had to make. Um, you just you just have to make choices when you're translating. So it's more like, oh, I see what they did there. I see. You know, you can't bring everything across exactly what you'd see in the original language. But when I first started learning Hebrew and Greek, I thought, oh, yeah, now I can see what it really means. And, I, and then, you know, it was very humbling to be like, oh, these people are much, much better, you know, Greek and Hebrew scholars than I'll ever be. But it really was, it was confirming to me of, wow, the, the English Bible is the word of God. It is saying what the Greek and Hebrew are saying. Um, you can just say that full stop. Now, are there times, unfortunately, where there are going to be some nuanced differences? Rarely, yes. It's very rare, I think. Um, so if you want to go deep, I mean, commentaries will usually help you with that. If there's a if there's a verse you really want to dwell on, I would say find a good faithful commentary and see what they say, just to make sure you you, you can kind of get a little more perspective on it. Um, yeah, but I I really want I really want Christians to be confident in their their translated Bible. It's a very very good translation. Okay. Yeah. Does that answer your question, Dave? Yeah. yeah. Um, let's talk about the theology of Proverbs. Um, the first is crea- the creator and the creation. Um, so in Proverbs, you know, I said that the storyline of Israel is more in the background. Israel, their covenant with God that he's made with them, the particular relationship and the story of that, that's more in the background. It is in the background, but it's not in the foreground. In the foreground, God is more portrayed as the creator who has made the world in a particular way and continues to reign over it, to govern it sovereignly. Um, would someone read, uh, I, I, need, I need three readers. So can someone read Proverbs 16.4? And then, so, so hand up for Proverbs 16.4. And then another one for 19.21. Yeah, Garrett, 16.4. Tyler, 19.21. Matt Boyd, can you be ready in soon with 21.2? So, um, Go ahead, Garrett, as soon as you get to... Garrett and Tal, you guys can just read yours. Yeah. Okay. Tyler? Mm-hmm. And then go ahead, Matt, with yours, 21-2. So the Lord made everyone, um, and the Lord determines what will happen. There's many Proverbs. And I have a bunch of references in your handout that we're just reading a sampling of. And uh, the Lord weighs the heart. He'll bring everything to judgment. So the creator of all is the judge 
who knows everything and reigns over everything, every detail of life. Um, Israel has particular access to God's wisdom because the Davidic king, King Solomon, uh, under the Davidic covenant, asked God for it, and God answered his prayer in 1 Kings 3. So Israel has unique access to God's wisdom, but the wisdom itself is universal. It's baked into the grain of the universe that God has made, and it's dependent on who God is and how he's created. Um, there are interesting, I've talked about, about Eden kind of evoked in the First Kings account, First Kings 4. There's also a lot of kind of Eden and creation-like um, allusions in Proverbs. So can someone read 3, 18 to 20? This is where we're uh, extolling wisdom. A lot of what's going on in the, these early chapters are just extolling the glory and, and the value of wisdom. So would someone be willing to read 3, 18 to 20? those who take hold of her and happy are all who hold her fast the lord by wisdom founded the earth and by understanding he established the heavens by his knowledge the deeps were broken up and the skies dripped with dew thank you so this you see this creational language about how the lord by his wisdom founded the earth and established the heavens and watered the earth um, you have this tree of life language which is really interesting this comes up a few times in proverbs of course that's an Allusion back to the tree of life in the Garden of Eden. Um, wisdom is a tree of life to those who lay hold of her. So really, the, the idea here is, is God is portrayed primarily as the creator and ruler of all. Um, God's original world was made in his wisdom and the new creation work that he is carrying out through this covenant plan that, of course, deals with Israel, um, leads to a restoration of Eden's wisdom. So to walk in God's wisdom now is really to experience a foretaste of heaven, a foretaste of future, uh, the future world to come. Um, the, another big theological theme is the fear of the Lord. We, we heard from this already. I've talked about it several times. We've heard from it in two different verses. Uh, the fear of the Lord is a right view of God's grandeur and his weightiness and a, an accompanying trembling that follows from that view of God. Um, it is not the servile fear of slavery. You heard that in Romans 8.15. We don't have the spirit of fear of falling into slavery again. Um, that's not the kind of fear that the, the healthy, godly fear of the Lord is. It's also not a repulsive fear that runs away. It's really interesting. In Exodus 20, God gives the Ten Commandments, and, and there's a lot of fanfare. There's a loud noise. Uh, it's scary. There's a loud noise. There's smoke. There's thunder and lightning there on Sinai. And the people, after God gives the Ten Commandments, the people say to Moses, essentially, make it stop. <laughs> we don't want to hear this anymore. You go up the mountain and you hear from God and you tell us. Come back and tell us. And Moses says in Exodus 20, 20, this paradoxical response. He says, do not fear. For God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. That's very interesting. He says, don't be afraid. God's just testing to see if you fear him. <laughs> Which clearly, in the context, you should fear him. Right? If you fear him, this will go well with you. So don't be afraid. Like, what? Well, there are different kinds of fear, right? There's a kind of fear that they're ex expressing when they say, get that stuff away from us. The fear of the Lord, the healthy fear of the Lord doesn't say that. It trembles, but it doesn't, it's not repulsive. It's actually attractive. Um, there's a kind of fear that trembles before God while amazingly wants to draw near to him. 
and to be closer to this awesome and holy one. Psalm 211 says, I love this, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. That's the, that's the healthy, godly fear of the Lord. So it's, it's to rejoice with trembling in view of God's greatness and holiness. That's the mystery of fearing the Lord. So moving back into Proverbs, this fear is the foundation of wisdom. It's the foundation of seeing the world aright and living in it well. Paul uh, read already 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Um, and this shows us that biblical wisdom is not equally accessible to all. Uh, there is a particular doorway into this place from which we're equipped to see the world as it is. And that doorway is a right relationship with God, a right perspective of understanding who he is and relating to him from the heart. Now, the modern world likes to fragment our character, our knowledge, and our abilities. And in a modern conception of a person, you can have one of these and not the other two. It's okay. You can, you can be a very competent person and a terrible in character, and it's like, okay, well, there's value in that. We can kind of uh, isolate these things from each other. Uh, there, the, the modern man uh, doesn't see these as a coherent whole, but biblical wisdom does. It sees these as integral and, and intimately related. Our ability to live life well in God's universe stems from seeing the world in a certain way. And that, that vision, that true vision of the world stems from a certain heart posture toward the Lord, our creator. So sometimes people just define wisdom as skill in living. And I think that's a good, a good concept, but I always want to say, be careful we don't import a modern, a very narrow kind of fragmented understanding of skill, because that's like technique, right? It's not technique, that's too narrow. The fear of the Lord is the foundation of it all. If all it was was tips, you know, and some tips for how to have a better relationship, so tips for your money or whatever, that's too narrow, that's too fragmented. There, are, there is counsel and skill for, you know, how to get good ends, how to get good results, but it's all wrapped in this coherent package with, with seeing God and seeing his world right. So that's the fear of the Lord. Any, any thought? I didn't stop and ask any, any about the creation and creator. Yeah, Paul? I got a question because you mentioned uh, 1533, Proverbs 1533. Oh, is it one of the ones listed there? Yeah, it's the last one, and I okay. want to ask you about it. It says, the fear of the Lord is the instruction for wisdom, comma, and before honor comes humility. Yeah. Now, when it says instruction for wisdom, how do you tie that in with the fear of the Lord? Yeah, I mean, not having studied it, but just... Initially, what it looks like is saying is, um, you know, fear of the Lord teaches wisdom. I don't think it's saying fear of the Lord is the content. Like, you don't need to hear wisdom, right? You need this whole book of Proverbs. But it's like saying fear of the Lord instructs you in wisdom. It's formative for your wisdom. And this pattern, this is a great example of the, the cause and effect, right? A humble, which what's implied is that humility corresponds with fear of the Lord. Fear of the Lord is a humble posture before him. And if you fear the Lord in humility, that trains you in wisdom, which leads to honor. It leads to good outcomes, both in this life and in the life to come. Yeah. That's a good question. So, yeah, Randy. I'm just thinking, if you don't uh, come to agreement who God says he is, how can you accept his wisdom? Right. I have that fear of right understanding the fear of the Lord in order mm -hmm. to receive his wisdom. Yeah, how can you receive God's wisdom without agreeing on who he is? 
And the purpose is for everything. Because wisdom is like a way to get to good ends, right? Well, then you kind of have to ask, well, what's the point of everything? Like, what are the good ends? You have to agree on that before wisdom is truly wisdom. So if our ends are, you know, getting rich and, and pleasing all my, you know, satisfying all of my carnal desires, you might find a few proverbs that are kind of helpful, but we're, you're, you're pulling in a very different direction than the grain of, of biblical wisdom. And so you're going to find holy, you're going to find the proverbs unhelpful because you're not, you're, not, you're not looking for the same thing that God's calling us to look for, which is a life lived under him. Um, according to our true design, he made us to live that way. So, yeah. Um, let's talk about righteousness and wisdom. So I've said a couple of different ways already that biblical wisdom is coherent. It's not fragmented facts or techniques. Um, because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, this means that character and knowledge and ability are a unified whole in biblical ethics. Now, that doesn't mean, we have to be careful how strongly we say this, ungodly people sometimes can do, in a limited sense, can do good and skillful things. We're not denying that. But uh, in the large scale, the practical skill of wisdom is deeply charged with ethical value. It's not just an, uh, it's not just an amoral Getting, getting stuff done, like a really pragmatic, okay, what are the tips for getting stuff done, which is the way our modern world might think or be tempted to think. I once saw someone put up a poll on social media saying, if you had to choose, would you rather your kids be successful, moral, or happy? Think about that. That's kind of a good question. What, you know, what, hmm. Would you rather your kids be successful, moral, or happy? And you had to vote on this. And... Uh, the modern world sees this as a good, kind of a good dilemma to solve. Wow, you know, which would be better? You know, you're kind of weighing between them. But the ancient thinkers, and I would say the Bible, and even outside the Bible, ancient thinkers like Aristotle and ancient Greece recognized that these categories are actually completely inseparable. That they're, they're, you can't untie the knot between success, morality or ethics, and happiness. It's actually one thing. They define and interpret each other. Because what is success but living according to... to uh, the good ends that we were designed for, like living according to our purpose, succeeding in what we were meant to be. And what is that except a state of happiness or flourishing or blessing? And we heard about this last week in Psalms 1 and 2, blessed is the man who these blessed is the, or blessed are the people statements. That's pointing to a way of life and a, a set of character, characteristics and saying, this is a good life. This is flourishing. This is blessing. This is true happiness, not just kind of transitory emotional state of happiness. The Beatitudes in Matthew 5, blessed are the poor in spirit. He's doing the same thing Jesus is. So this is a state that's determined morally. A certain kind of person is in this flourishing, happy, blessed state. And that is the end for which we were meant to be. That's the end we were meant to be in. So what I'm saying is in the the biblical perspective, true success is a flourishing life. And a flourishing life is defined through certain patterns of character. It is a knot that cannot be untied. Uh, so Aristotle was right about that, but he was limited. He wasn't right uh, as a pagan. He didn't know the God of Israel. And he failed to understand the role of fearing the Lord in this equation, in defining happiness and virtue. So Proverbs tracks well with what Aristotle was doing there, but it goes beyond, and it ties together the wisdom, which is skillful living, you could think that's a success thing. Wisdom tells you how to have success. But it ties it together with righteousness, which is living morally consistent with God's law. And together, rooting these in the fear of the Lord. That's what Proverbs does. So 
The reason I bring all this up is that you're going to find righteousness and wisdom intimately interconnected in Proverbs. It's really fascinating. Even just like to do a word study on a word search on righteous or righteousness in Proverbs. And a lot of the Proverbs are about righteousness or wickedness. And uh, sometimes the Proverbs uses righteousness and wisdom interchangeably. Like in uh, 10.21, it's kind of interesting. Here, let's read that. Um, The lips of the righteous feed many, but fools die for lack of sense. So what two states are being contrasted with each other? The lips of the righteous feed many, but fools die for lack of sense. Righteousness and foolishness. You see how there was a bit of a a jumping from one track to the other? Righteousness is supposed to be contrasted with wickedness, and folly is supposed to be contrasted with wisdom. But you can kind of jump tracks because of how interrelated wisdom and righteousness are. They're not identical, but they coincide. They exist together. So you have that happening in Proverbs, in the wisdom literature. You also have tons of teaching about righteousness. That in a sense, back to 1 Kings 3, what, what Solomon asks for is wisdom in order to do justice, to reign justly. And that's a really fascinating thing to meditate on, that he says, I, wanted, I want wisdom so as to do the right thing as the king and the ruler. So that's this hand-in-glove kind of wisdom-righteousness relationship. So you see, uh, like early on in Proverbs, um, can someone read chapter 1, verses 2 to 3, the purpose of why, why learn wisdom? What's this book about? What's it for? Can someone read uh, verses 2 to 3 of chapter 1? Isn't that interesting? You'll learn instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity. Again, they're just they're just interrelated intimately. There's other references in your handout. Two six through ten does the same thing, uh, talking about. Um, then you'll like when you're taught by wisdom, then you'll understand righteousness and justice and equity, every good path. So wisdom teaches you how to be righteous in a in a holistic sense under the Lord. Um, so Proverbs has a timeless atmosphere to it we've talked about it's timeless wisdom but god's broader body of revelation should fill in the gaps for us when we hear about righteousness we should be thinking of his moral law expressed in the law of moses you see especially in particular in the ten commandments when we ask well what's justice what's righteousness we should understand that has been already defined for israel and for us in god's moral law Uh, so there's that's the relationship there there's much to meditate on and think through as we read proverbs between those two things. Any any questions or thoughts before we look on at uh, the next topic, next theological theme? All right. I'll be brief here. There's a there's a reaping and sowing pattern. Um, there's a, you know, Galatians 6, 7. I love this. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. The Proverbs bear this out in a lot of ways. Again, there's a sort of a cause and effect. If you put in this input into God's world, this is the output you will get. Both good and bad. Um, the iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline, and because of his great folly, he is led astray. That's Proverbs five twenty-two and 23. You see that cause and effect. Well, because he's foolish, because he doesn't have discipline, he's going to die. <laughs> like it's gonna, 
One way, and we know, like, it may lead to his death in this life. We know there's an eternal horizon in which it will lead to death in a more ultimate sense. But you can grab any, like, random sample. I think I have in your outline, I was going to, for the sake of time, we won't read this, but 11, 1 to 16, I was just going to have us read it together. And just, you can point out, but do this on your own. Read, like, a half of a chapter of Proverbs or a whole chapter and just point out sowing and reaping pattern as you see it. Like, this input will lead to this harvest. Again, it's both positive and negative. It's all over the Proverbs. It's just this insight into the, God's world was set up a certain way. And certain, uh, certain actions and, and attitudes and ways of being will lead to certain consequences. Um, the last theme we're going to look at is Christ and the Proverbs. Um, now, I, I told you earlier on how Proverbs fit within God's Davidic covenant promises and hinting toward fulfillment beyond Solomon. In Christ as the kind of anti-type of all this. Um, Solomon's downturn trains our eyes farther forward. Where is this going to be fulfilled more fully? All of God's purposes and promises. Uh, Jesus himself picks that up and applies it to himself. Matthew 12, 42, he says, The queen of the south, and that's uh, that's Queen Sheba who came to see Solomon in, in uh, 1 Kings, I believe, chapter 4. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Who's he talking about? <laughs> Saying, I'm greater than Solomon. I'm, I, am the, I am the anti-type, the one for whom Solomon was meant to be a, a shadow and an anticipation. I'm the greater Solomon. And, and what's really condemning for his contemporaries is, people came from all around to see him, and you've got me right in your backyard, and you're rejecting me. Um, other New Testament authors love to tie Jesus to the wisdom of God. Even the familiar prologue in, in John's Gospel, verse 1 uh, of John's Gospel, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That idea of Word, that Greek term, is not just linguistic word in the narrow sense. It's this idea of thought or reason. That in a sense, the Son, the second person of the Trinity, is kind of the reason of the Godhead. And uh, the, the, the kind of blueprint of creation. All things were made through him. Um, Paul writes that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Colossians 2.3. And calls him in 1 Corinthians a couple places in chapter 1. The wisdom of God. Christ is the wisdom of God. So for this reason, um, some early, a lot of early interpreters saw in Proverbs 8 verses 22 to 31. There's this poem that personifies God's wisdom. As a person, wisdom is saying, uh, talking about how the Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of old, and talks about how the Lord created all things through wisdom. It says, uh, ages ago I was set up at the first before the beginning of the earth. Uh, when there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no springs abounding with water. And it goes on that I was there with him, rejoicing as he created all things. And a lot of it in the early church saw this as, it's a poetic image, of course. It's actually a poetic image of a female. It's, it's Wisdom is a woman in the book of Proverbs. But anticipating Christ is sort of a Christ figure there in the Proverbs. as, as saying like, well, Christ was there, uh, eternally generated before all things from the Father. Um, he is the wisdom of God. He is the one through whom God created all things. And so... Um, there was, there was very early on an, an acknowledgement that that's, that's, a, that's a, a, a type of Christ there in that poetic figure of wisdom. Now, you may or may not agree with that, um, but I, I think there's a lot of merit to that. But the broader point is that there is no, as we saw, there's no separating wisdom 
from the fear of the Lord. At the largest level, we need to say more and say, neither can we separate wisdom from the knowledge of Christ, because it's in Christ that all the treasury of God's wisdom has been given. Uh, To know Christ is to have exclusive and privileged access to the wisdom of God. And it's only those, as Paul Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.16, with the mind of Christ, given through the Spirit, we share through the Spirit of Christ, that we can truly tap into the reservoir of divine teaching in the Proverbs. So um, the the broadest sense of the fear of the Lord in, in, in the scope of all that God's revealed in the whole Bible story is it's knowing God through Christ. It's coming to God through his treasury of wisdom, Jesus Christ, that we can know his wisdom and truth. So uh, read the Proverbs. Think about how Jesus embodied them in his life. Uh, think about how he, he shows us God's wisdom in, a, in the fullest way. Any questions or thoughts or pushback about any of that? Uh, anything we've looked at? Theo- that, that ends a, our discussion of the theological themes. Yeah, Randy. Yeah, um, you've used the word a lot, imagery or image. Yeah. And I was thinking about how those images in Scripture, or the imagery in Scripture is very impactful. And it led me back to God the Creator, how he intimately knows our creation, how we're put together. Mm -hmm. He put us together, especially our brains. Yeah. And he's speaking to us in a way he knows would be extremely impactful. Yes. Yeah, that's true. The way he uses imagery. Yeah, exactly. This is our creator who made us and knows exactly how we work, knowing how best to communicate. The whole Bible, I mean, is the wisdom of all the different varied ways he communicates. That he knows when to tell a story. He knows when to write an epistle. And he knows when to give poems and pictures. And they're all in the service of communicating his truth to our whole selves, right? It's, it's always through our intellect, but it's meant to get beyond just our intellect into our affections and our will and yeah that's very true well we've talked about some of the theological themes there's also we could look at it as kind of the life topics of proverbs all the areas of application that proverbs uh, touches on and it's 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 comprehensive one biblical commentator said that proverbs gives us a unifying approach to life because of how foundational the fear of the Lord is, Proverbs reaches into all these different excuse me, areas of life. There's almost no end to the ways we could categorize the topics that Proverbs talk about. I have a, a pulled out a few to kind of, uh, those that receive special, especially heavy attention. Now, I've given you a bunch of references that's not exhaustive by any means. I didn't go through every verse. It's like, here's all the verses on parents and whatever. This is just a sampling, and we're only going to be able to look at a sampling of that. So, just to give you a flavor of some of the kinds of things Proverbs talks about a lot. Um, about parental instruction and discipline. There's kind of two ways this is reflected in Proverbs. One is, um, this is especially in the first nine chapters, that invitation to wisdom, is that the parents appealing to their kid. Uh, like verses 4, 10, and 11. Hear my son and accept my words that the years of your life may be many. I have taught you the way of wisdom. I have led you in the paths of uprightness. So it's like, I've been teaching you wisdom for all these years, kid, and now you're a young man and you're about to go out into the world. Remember the way that I've taught you. I've taught you wisdom. It will be life-giving. It will preserve you from so many problems. Uh, so there's that. There's that parental charge throughout Proverbs, to which that implicitly instructs parents. Let's be the kind of parents that can say that to our kids, that are training them in the way of wisdom and can say, 
son, daughter, remember all that I've taught you over the years about how to fear the Lord and see his world rightly and, and live in it well. Um, the, other th- the other way that parental instruction is reflected is there's a lot of Proverbs about how to raise kids, about child rearing. Didi quoted one uh, from, I forget where that one was, uh, raise a child up in the way you should go. Is that 1918? 2215. Oh, yeah, okay. Well, that was one that I was going to have us read. Oh, no, 22.6, yeah. 22.15 says, Folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline drives it far from it. There's a lot about discipline for children and just the value and importance of, of uh, instructing and disciplining. And there we could go into a lot there of just the, the two modes of teaching and disciplining. Those is kind of guardrails for raising children. But there's a lot of wisdom in just those two modes uh, of, of godly parenting. Another topic is choosing a woman, and that's both literal and metaphorical. So again, the implied listener or recipient of Proverbs is a young man launching into adult life. And chapter 9, the the end of this invitation part of wisdom, is sort of like this. There's two choices before you, young man. You have these two metaphorical women who are being contrasted. There's Lady Folly, um, who is in verses 13 to 18. The woman folly is loud. She's seductive. She's trying to seduce you. Come my way. Come to my house. And the implied thing is, form a relationship with me. It's kind of like a marriage. But then earlier on, verses 1 to 12, is woman wisdom. Wisdom has built her house. And she prepares this wonderful house, this wonderful feast, and says, come, join me. There's this implied, like, who are you going to form a relationship with? It's kind of, it's almost like a marriage decision he has. Whom will he choose? That's kind of the choice that's set before the son. Um, there are also proverbs that say things about one's literal wife. There are a lot of proverbs teaching about good uh, marriage relationships, about about marital intimacy. In chapter five, uh, there's proverbs like uh, was it nineteen fourteen? I have uh, here that I was going to have us look at about nineteen fourteen. House and wealth are inherited from the fathers from fathers, but a prudent wife is from the Lord. It's good to have a prudent, wise uh, wife. Um, later on, we talked about at the end, there's this poem of the excellent wife, verses 10 to 31 of chapter 31. And this is often cited as, you know, like, wives, look how to be a good wife. And I think there is value. I, I think that's very true and appropriate. David, you mentioned people have said, is it a metaphorical for wisdom? Is that what kind of you're talking about? When you asked about chapter 31? Yeah. Yeah, I, th- I, I think there's actually something to that. In that chapter 9, the, the, the end of the, fir- the, the, the invitation of wisdom, chapter 9 says, like, there's these two women asking you to marry them. And if you marry woman wisdom, this is how it'll go for you. If you marry woman folly, here's how it'll go for you. And, the, and then in context of that, we have the very end of Proverbs. This, an excellent wife does all these great things for you. Um, again, I, I think what's reflected is there, this is true about what a good wife does. But again, I think there's, there's clear in the context of Proverbs, clearly, contextually, there's a metaphorical message here of this is how wisdom will take care of you if you choose that house to go into, so to speak, back in chapter 9. Um, that, but but there, there is this, which, which woman, and then there's also, and, and that leads into... Um, I'm getting ahead of myself with another theme. Um, but anyway, there's, there's both literal and metaphorical, which, what kind of woman, young man, are you going to choose? 
Um, there's Proverbs about treasuring wisdom. Uh, I'll read 16, 16. Um, how much better to get wisdom than gold? To get understanding is to be chosen rather than silver. So just how valuable, how, what a treasure it is to know God's wisdom. There's a lot of warnings about bad relationships. There's some positive teaching about good friendships, good relationships. There's both the evil companion. On the bad relationships, the two sides are the evil companion, like other men who are going to be bad influences, and then sexual sin. Uh, you see these together, or one after the other, in chapter 2, verses 12 to 19, where he says, like, oh, if you're t- taught by wisdom, you, will, um, you won't go hang out with those um, those people who like delivering it will deliver you from the way of evil from men of perverted speech who forsake the paths of uprightness. It goes on and describes the kind of men that you will not fall in with if you're trained by wisdom. And then in uh, in in verse 16 it switches. So you'll be delivered from the forbidden woman from the adulteress with her smooth words. Wisdom will also guard you against that that sex, the seduction of sexual sin. So those are kind of the twin dangers relationally: is the the bad companions and uh, sexual temptation. Um, you have uh, Proverbs about diligence in work. Um, chapter 10, verse 4 is, is a good one here. A slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. A good and true thread of reality, not the whole picture. That's a good example of one where you cannot say every rich person is diligent, every poor person is lazy. That would be a, a misuse of this proverb. But there is cause and effect reality here. That diligence leads to prosperity generally. And laziness leads to ruin um, financially. Um, there's, there are proverbs, a lot of proverbs about interpersonal justice, just walking justly toward others with, a, with, with righteousness. You have this image of false scales, kind of when we go to the marketplace, what kinds of measures we use. Are we trying to cheat others? You have like 1525, the Lord tears down the house of the proud but maintains the widow's boundaries. The widow would be a, an, an easily oppressed person in, in ancient Israel saying the Lord watch out if you're someone who's going to oppress the widow because the Lord is on her side etc um, we have Proverbs about wealth I'm going to be real quick just just these these last categories uh, wealth words kings there's some some teaching on either dealing with kings or being a king um, we have Proverbs about the nature of wisdom and folly like in that section there's a lot about being willing to listen, you know, the, the, the fool who doesn't listen, that's a big deal in Proverbs, or the one who listens to counsel and listens to reproof. So Proverbs definitely commends, be the kind of person that listens to rebuke and, and teaching and counsel. Uh, and then a lot about walking with the Lord, just having a relationship with the Lord, knowing him and uh, walking in his ways. There's a lot about his character and knowing, just living in view of his character of who he is. So there, there, uh, there are some of the many themes that we could identify. But um, before we close that, any other? I know we've buzzed through a lot here at the end. But is there any any thoughts on what we've covered here with these themes and Proverbs, life themes? Any other major life themes that too that you that you've found in Proverbs? Yeah. Yeah. Where it says, I mean, this is just. We got to think about this for a second. How much better is it to get wisdom than gold? You could think about someone wanting to hand you a, uh, a gold bar. I mean, how many mm-hmm. thousands of dollars would that be worth? Yeah. How much better is it to get wisdom than gold and to get understanding and be chosen above silver? That just that's almost mind blowing to me. That, that how much better it is to have wisdom from God than yeah. to have a, 
a gold bar in your hand. I mean, that, yeah, I mean, for a believer, that'd be a test. That is a verse, like many of these, worthy of, of meditation, just thinking about that. Wow, how do I treat money? How do I treat wealth? And how do I treat God's with the knowledge of God and his wisdom? Yeah, Randy. Contrast wisdom and money. Money can be stolen, taken, or lost. Yeah. Wisdom is with you forever. Yeah, I mean, so some Proverbs are like, wisdom might lead to money, but there's a lot of Proverbs too, like, well, if you have to choose, you better take wisdom over money, right? Wisdom and righteousness are to be chosen hands down over money because they're transitory. They can be lost. They're not of eternal value. Um, yeah, so just a sampling. Yeah, this is a survey, a sampling of the Proverbs, what God is teaching us there, this coherent fabric of the world he's made, how to view it and live in it under him in the fear of him, and uh, really ultimately pointing to Christ as the treasury of, of his wisdom that we get through him, through knowing Christ and faith in him. We get access to knowing God's wisdom and living in it. Um, and so I'm going to close by reading an invitation. And just by way, practically read Proverbs. It's like, like a broken record. Read them, uh, meditate on them, memorize them, um, and treasure them and let them work themselves into your, your conscience, your imagination, and your, your, your thought. Um, and to close us, chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding, Yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. And may that be the case for all of us who know him through his son, Jesus. Let me close this in prayer. And afterward, if you want to interact with me, either in person or email me or anything about further questions or or pushback or anything, I'm glad to interact with you. But let's go ahead and close in prayer. Father God, we thank you for for being so abundant to us and teaching us this treasury of wisdom in the Proverbs. And through your son, Jesus Christ, who is the the supreme revelation of your eternal perfection and of your grace and truth, and who himself is the expression of your wisdom. Uh, We love to learn your wisdom. We love to learn how to fear you and how to live in your way in this world and how to see the world rightly. We pray that we would be devoted to your wisdom, that we would saturate our minds and hearts in it that it would capture our imagination and change our goals for life and change our habits transform us into the likeness of christ uh with with hope set not in this this life but in the world to come yet give us a skill in living in this life in this world in a way that is uh, that is sound that's discerning that's knowledgeable and pleasing to you thank you for this time we could learn together i pray that all of us would, would have zeal to Uh, devote ourselves to your wisdom. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.